Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is titled, Is Jesus Coming Back? And Why Does It Matter? For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can visit us at our website at bccma.org, or you could always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. Okay, I'm excited about talking about one of the great doctrines of the church. I know when you think about coming to church, you think, I want to go here today and hear about a great doctrine. I know that's what you talk about on the way here, because I want to hear about a great doctrine today. You know, you're, now you're probably thinking, I want to hear how to solve one of my problems, you know. Uh, well, great doctrines can help solve your problems, I believe. So let's talk about one of the great doctrines of the church, and it's called, Is Jesus Coming Back? And Why Does It Matter? I'm going to give you three passages of Scripture to jump off with. First John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. <clears throat> and it... Ha- has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Then we jump back to the left in the New and Year Bible to Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're going to jump to the right again, to near the end of the New Testament, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory, and our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself um, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. So it's telling me, Pastor, you need to teach these things to your people. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Okay? So I'll admit the stress of our times has caused me to think more about and to reevaluate this cornerstone doctrine of the church called the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like uh, at our house, we have got a big box of VHS tapes, right? And uh, Sherry told the kids one of the things she wanted for Christmas is to get them put in digital files. And so we're in the process of seeing these VHS tapes go from VHS. Does anybody know what a VHS is? <laughs> Anybody un- uh, under 30 know what a VHS is? There's big old things we used to stick in a machine and they would play video tapes. And uh, so, uh, you know, you. Yeah, that's important to you to know. These are tapes of our children. And they're not just old movies or something, but the videos of our children, Sherry wants them. So it's a big project to get them from this tape to digital form. 
And that, that's kind of what it's like to talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, the, the coming of the Lord. That's kind of what it's talked about, to bring that into the mindset of modern people. I want to talk a little bit more about that, why that's, why that's difficult. We want to explore the reasons even Christians sometimes don't talk about it as much anymore. Uh, the most obvious reason, I think, is when things are going well. You don't think about, you don't sit around thinking about, oh, God, please rescue from my comfort and my prosperity. <laughs> right? You don't think like that. But, uh, but that kind of reveals our insensitivity because somewhere in the world, at any time, people are suffering and they're hurting. Hundreds and thousands of people are really suffering and hurting in deep poverty and ill sickness and persecution of all sorts all over the world. So that's kind of an insensitive way to look at life, but it's kind of the way of Westerners and Americans we tend to do. And, and also, it's ignorant because, because there's really good reason that the message of Christ's return isn't just for desperate times. It isn't just for desperate people. It isn't just for suffering people. The return of Christ is actually the biblical narrative. And without it, the biblical narrative is not complete. If you don't believe in the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ, it's like you have a six-act play, and the last act is, is, is silent. But for the first act of the play is, of course, cre creation. The second act is the fall of mankind when we sin. The third act is the birth of Israel and the law. The fourth act is Christ and the cross and our redemption and the fifth act is the church embodying the very presence of Christ in the world. Then you get to act six. If you don't have a conclusion, if you don't have a, a, a culmination, the plot doesn't work. The plot's got to go somewhere. And the plot from Genesis 1 to the end of the book in Revelation goes to something. The optional, there is an optional ending. You, you, ever, you ever read one of those books or watch one of those things where you get to choose the ending? Well, well, here's the ending that many are choosing today, is that Christianity will actually be assimilated into all the other religions and all the other philosophies and will create a world of equity and justice and peace. Now, even if you believe that, even if you believe we're on the verge of complete tranquility and utopia, even if you believe that, I have a news flash for you. We still all die. <laughs> I mean, if, if we solve all the big issues, which, which we should, we should always be working to solve our problems. That is a, I believe that's a godly thing to solve problems, don't you? I think it's a godly thing to to reduce pain, reduce suffering, make sure people aren't hungry, reduce loneliness, all of those things, all of those things. But let, let's say that we cure all the big ones. You get your electric car, we all get our electric cars, and we lower the temperature of the earth by 10 degrees. Global warming, we licked it. We got it, all right? Hatred and racism and all of that. We just get our act together. We, 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 and that'd be great. We ought to be trying to do those things we really haven't changed our eternity one bit by solving all the problems of the world. I've got a better ending of the story. I thought you'd be more excited than that, but never mind. 
My quest today is to re-examine the return of Christ and try to figure out how we can rescue this beautiful central doctrine from the attic, bring it down, dust it off from where we have stored it, while we continue to live in love in the present. How can we frame the second coming and even judgment, that ugly word judgment, in a way that doesn't seem, just seem relevant in a global pandemic or political turmoil, but actually grounds us to this beautiful reality for all times, for all people. I believe it's possible that the message of returning Christ can actually equip us with a more coherent message, a better, now I I want you to hear this, a better motivation for doing good than trying to heal the world ourselves. Now, you'll you'll have to wait for the end to to hear that. Okay, so I want to show you why I believe in the return of Christ, why it's gotten hard to talk about, and number three, why it's good news, why I believe. Let's start with Jesus himself. Keep in mind, I'm not going to tell you why I want to believe it. I want to tell you why I believe it. I'm not going to talk... I'm only make a brief allusion to the Antichrist, and I'm not going to talk about the rapture. That won't get a lot of attention this morning. So, why do I believe this fantastic story that the Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead is not only our risen Lord, but our returning Lord? Well, let's start with Christ himself. Christ himself insisted that he would return. The gospel records Christ himself saying he will return 21 times. Here's a sample of those statements. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Here he is in the inner room. Do not believe it, for as lightning comes from the east and is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 26, and 27. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other, Matthew 24, 30, and 31. For the Son of Man is going to come into his, in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will, he will reward each person according to what he has done, Matthew 16, 27. So you, almost, you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him, Matthew 24, 40 through 44. You must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him, Luke 12, 40. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels, Mark 8, 38. So the the belief in the coming of Christ rests on the credibility of Christ. Now, there can be no question that he believed he would return. And to return to the argument for Christ's credibility I like what C.S. Lewis always said. He was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Even the most extreme cynics, the most ardent, angry atheists don't claim Jesus was deranged, delusional, psychotic, con artist, or criminal. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, 
Richard Dennett, the four horsemen. <laughs> I've never even heard them say. Well, you know what they will say? They will say, well, he was, uh, he was a good teacher. They'll say he was a good man. They'll say he was a prophet. If he claimed he was the son of God, and he claimed he was returning again to heal the world and restore creation. He wasn't a good man, if it wasn't true, I meant to say. If it wasn't true, he wasn't a good man, he wasn't a prophet, he was either crazy or he was a con artist. Or he was the son of God. You can't have it both ways. Also, the New Testament epistles spoke often of Christ's return. Paul alone gives us so many references, I don't have time to mention, even the ones of just, just Apostle Paul. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, and our gathering together unto him to Thessalonians 2.1, and in a very important chapter, if you want to know more about the coming of Christ. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament mention the return of Christ. Seven out of every ten chapters in the New Testament make some mention of the Lord's return. That would be an average of one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament. Mention the Lord's return. The New Testament, in fact, closes with these words. The last thing, you know how when your husband's walking out the door? The thing you want him to remember most, you tell him last. Don't forget to pick up. Don't forget to stop by the ATM machine. Don't forget to pick up the milk. Don't forget to pick up the bread. So the last thing that we're told is, yes, I am coming soon. Yeah. That's the last thing he told us before he closed the door. Yeah. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, is the response. Hebrews 9.28 says, For he will appear a second time to bring salvation to those who wait for him. You might be surprised to know that references to Christ's second coming outnumber the references to his first coming, eight to one. Bible scholars have identified 1,844 references to the second coming of Christ, even in the Old Testament. 17 books of the Old Testament talk about the coming of Jesus Christ. And of course, we have Daniel and Almost every other prophet, Old Testament prophet, foretold the triumphal return of Jesus Christ. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel records a vision of four beasts that describe four kingdoms, three yet to come. And he describes a future prominent leader, uh, which most people believe identifies a person who is, is, they call the Antichrist. And other scriptures call him the Antichrist. It, uh, I, but anyway, he sees three nations, a prominent leader, a, a consortium of nations that will precede the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It, it, it's in great unmistakable detail that Daniel describes the Babylonian Empire, which he was living in at the time. He describes the Medo-Persian Empire, which was the one to come under King Darius. He describes... Uh, the kingdom of Alexander the Great, and he describes the Roman Empire. And in chapter 9, he even creates a timeline, and it's amazing how close to Daniel's timeline those kingdoms came into place, and those kingdoms manifest their, their, their power and their human glory 
It's an amazing thing. Daniel had no way humanly of knowing. And you know, I often hear people will say things like, well, the Bible has mistakes. Well, show them to me. Show them to me. No one's ever taken me to Daniel and said, well, what he said didn't come to pass. <laughs> Daniel said this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. And this is what's important. I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. I really don't. I mean, now you know everybody's talking about Everybody's talking about the great global reset, scaring everybody to death. And um, it doesn't help, as I said the other day, it doesn't help that Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, looks like a villain in a James Bond movie and sounds like a villain in a James Bond movie. That doesn't help. And, uh, and we know, we're in the digital age, and we know that, we know that we're in the computer age, and we know about computer chips and all this stuff, so everybody... You know, Daniel, the culmination of Daniel's vision was not to glory in the Antichrist. In fact, it makes it sound like the Antichrist is going to have a, a brief splurge. But it was to, listen to what he says. I'll, let me just read it for you. You're intelligent people. I don't have to explain it. I just read it, right? You explain it to yourself. As my vision continued in Daniel 17, 13, that night I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. We know anytime it's the son of man, he's talking about Jesus. That's very clear. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The prophet Zechariah, I'm talking about Old Testament prophets here, even told us where he will come back. On the day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south, Zechariah 14.4. Now, it doesn't bother me that maybe some things are metaphorical, but I know when the Bible describes a person, that's not metaphorical, and that's what matters to me. I believe Christianity, here's the deal, I believe Christianity is just one more humanitarian organization with another social justice theory without the message of a returning Christ. Now let's talk about why it's difficult to talk about the second coming of Christ. For, for starters, there's the embarrassment of the people who've set dates. Harold Camping set dates a few years ago. And I'm not, I'm, not hard, I'm not too hard on these guys. I'm always pulling for them. I'm always going, I hope he's right. I hope this is it. I remember when I came to Bethany Community Church, Sherry and I came here in 1988, a guy, you know, they all this saying, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. Well, this guy was a rocket scientist. And he mathematically figured out, supposedly, when Christ was coming. And so he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Jesus Would Come in 1988. And I remember I had this lady in the church at the time who was reading all this materials. 
And I was really, you know, those days, Christy and Jay were little. I was working in Whalen, and Sharon and I were pastoring the church. Life was really busy, and as it always is, but I just didn't have time to read this material. And um, about the 88 reasons I saw it, heard about it, you know, uh, I just don't change my life that much. You know, of course, uh, later we lived through Y2K, and a bunch of people, Jesus was coming then. And uh, anyway, this, uh, this lady, uh, it's, it, I did not know, but Jesus was supposed to come on Labor Day. And on Thursday or Friday before Labor Day, she brings me all the books. It was like a booklet he had written. I'll never forget it. It was just a, like a cheaply done little booklet of brownish-looking paper with red lettering on it. And I said to her, uh, she said to me, I want you to read this. I said, well, I don't, I'm really busy. I won't have time to read it till Tuesday. <laughs> and she said, it'll be too late. <laughs> well, so a few of those things happen, and after a while, you go, wait a minute, I'm not going to, I don't know if this is really happening anymore. Now, that's one reason it's hard to talk about the coming of the Lord. Another reason is I thought... Uh, Another reason has to do with a shift in our thinking about the world. Uh, we, we want to be, and sometimes in a very good sense, we want to be accepted by the world. Uh, and, uh, and, and we don't want to be seen as looking down on them. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. I thought Vincent uh, uh, Barcott said it well. And I'm going to read a rather lengthy quote from him in a minute. Uh, he's a professor, associate professor of theology and director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College. And he had this, uh, this observation in an interview I heard him in the other day. He said, probably one of the biggest reasons that can be associated with why we have the emerging church movement is the millennials and Gen X wanted to have a faith that was looking for Jesus to come back and then have a dissonant relationship with caring about life in the present. So in other words, it was dissonant to them. Looking for Jesus to come back, but yet being involved in the present world. Uh, he said, um, uh, Gen X and early millennials were saying, we need to care as much about our personal piety as we do about things like poverty and the environment. And not just talking about abortion. For example, a moral issue but, but, uh, but, but what about political concerns as things that warranted attention? We need to care about what's around us rather than just talking about believing what's right and having an us versus them mentality. I, I, I've, I've heard that quite a bit. That Sometimes people, even when they come to Bethany Community Church, they're very uncomfortable when I talk in a way that sounds like it's us versus them. Us and them. It makes us very uncomfortable these days to talk like that. He goes on to say it was a shift to we the people who are waiting for Jesus to return are believing the rapture could happen any moment. We want people to know that we're loving to everyone and we care about what goes on in this world and we're not ignoring this world because we think Jesus is about to come back at any moment. In other words, we don't want to be in a place of judgment these days. I mean, the church I grew up as a kid, we loved to be in the place of judgment. It was felt awesome. But it doesn't anymore. It feels weird and awkward right now. 
We, we don't want to be seen as haters, but people who talk about the love of God. We don't want to, be, we don't want to communicate, you're wrong, enjoy burning in hell while I enjoy being with Jesus. How, how many of you want your family to hear you talk like that, right? You don't want that, do you? Uh, we have, we have, also have scholars like N.T. Wright who tell us we need to stop presenting Christianity as just being all about going to heaven when we die and start living like Christians and caring about the present world. The kingdom of God is here and now. And I agree with N.T. Wright on that, mostly. However, that's where we're at today. Now, I don't have the whole solution to all of those problems for you today. But I have come to the conclusion. You see, I have a foundation before I even get to those conversations. The first foundation I, I have is that, the word, that God is God and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I have the foundation that God's word is true. And so my, my basic understanding is I don't have a right to tell God how things should be. I don't have, I, I'm not in the place to advise him even. I have to believe his word and I have to leave all those fuzzy, difficult questions for him to sort out. I got to leave all that for him and the Holy Spirit to sort out the us and them problem. But I know we can't solve it because when I go, if you go into the world of those who do not believe, and by the way, we do believe very much in working alongside people of all sorts of faiths and all sorts of beliefs to do good in the world. I tell you, the people that are hungry and in need of care and in need of social concern, their first concern is not what I believe. Their first concern is for me to meet their physical needs, and that's a very godly and very spiritual Thing to do. So we will work with people anywhere, it, almost, almost anybody will work with you if you want to help alleviate human suffering. But when you go to anybody's world, there's always, you either fit in or you don't. And you know there's a lot of places in the world that you don't fit in, a lot of places that I don't fit in. But I have made a choice to fit in with Jesus. I've made a choice to fit in with his will for my life. And I've, I, I've also made a choice to make it my life's purpose to share with the world the good news that you're invited to open the door really wide to know that you're invited to enter into a relationship, a personal relationship, a powerful relationship, a joyful relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's what may help you, though, with that conversation. If you look at Matthew 25, some of you are familiar. A lot of people are going back because of the times we live in. They're going back in their study in Matthew 24, Matthew 25. And you see a lot in those chapters about horrible things coming on the world. In fact, it says in one place that men's hearts would fail them for fear for the things that are coming on the world. And some of you here today, you are, you are a believer, you're a follower of Christ, but you're struggling with fear right now because of what you see coming on the world or what you think is coming on the world. So, so the Bible says, uh, it says there that men's hearts would fail them for fear. It also says, look up, for your redemption draws nigh. So don't forget that verse, okay? 
Don't freak out, look up. But it also says, Jesus also, and this is really interesting to me, right in the middle of this conversation about Jesus teaching about the sheep nations and the goat nations and him dividing the sheep nations from the goat nations in a final judgment, which I'm not entirely sure exactly what that text is talking about entirely, but I know it represents some kind of discrimination and judgment. I know it represents that. So in in the middle of that conversation, you would think Jesus would just talk about believing in me, having faith in me, obeying me, and doing everything I tell you to do toward me. But no, what he does, he doesn't just say, look up, but he says, look out. And he has this whole, about five or six verses, you can check it out for yourself later this week or today, five or six verses all about taking care of people who are in need, all about giving People, even he even mentions giving people a drink of water as being ministry. And he said, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. He did that in the context of judgment, in the context of his return. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. The greatest possible motive for compassion is that I will someday stand before Jesus. The greatest possible motive for doing good in the world, the greatest possible motivator for for kindnesses and little deeds of mercy that you show to humanity, the greatest motivator is not that you are going to solve the problems of the world or you're going to fix the world. That's not the greatest motivator. The greatest motivator is not that you're going to solve all the problems of humanity. Because if that's your motivation, if your motivation for being kind and doing kindnesses and doing good and showing compassion and living in a way that's loving toward your fellow human being, if your if your motivation for that is I'm going to do this because I'm going to I'm going to heal the world, I'm going to fix everything that's wrong, and certainly we want to be working alongside people who want to fix whatever is wrong, whatever is unjust. We want to fix it. But it's very, very important, old church. It's very important, Christian. It's very important, those of you who are thinking about being a Christian, it's very important that you know that what motivates us, what motivates us, and I believe it's the greatest motivation you could ever possibly have, is this, the, the judge of all the world, the great noticer who notices every time I forgive you, every time I love you. He notices when I bring you a drink of water. He notices, he notices when I give you a break. He notices when I care about your needs. He notices, he notices. And someday I'm going to stand before the judge of all, of all the world and who notices the things you didn't notice who sees the things in my life that you didn't see and other people didn't see, and he's going to look at me and say, Phil, I'm really proud of you. I noticed. I noticed that you cared about others. I noticed that you were loving. I noticed that you were kind. I noticed you met needs. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. 
That's why the message of the coming of Jesus Christ is the greatest message in the world. We need an ending to the story. And the ending, the, the beginning of the story has to be good news. And the beginning of the story is good news. You're forgiven of all your sins. But that's not the, all the good news. The good news, the end, the end of the story has to be good. This six-act play needs a sixth act. It needs a final act. And the final act is not that just you are forgiven. That's great. That's wonderful. My shame is lifted. That's great. That's wonderful. But I, God has something better than that, and that is you are, you, are, uh, you are welcomed into my eternal kingdom forever and ever, and I am coming back to heal the world of everything that's wrong with it. Amen? So that brings us to, in fact, he says in, in uh, Revelation twenty two twelve, look, I'm coming soon bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. So that brings us to how the second coming of Christ is the ultimate good news. The Bible says in Acts 17, 31, He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, mercy and justice are the foundation of Christ's thrones. You cannot have love without judgment. You can't have love without judgment. You can't have mercy without judgment. It's the other side of the coin. If you love your family, you would judge an intruder who came and tried to hurt them. If you love your child, and you see them going down a path of self-destructive beliefs and behaviors, you will judge those behaviors. You will declare judgment on those behaviors because you love them. You cannot have love without judgment. And so Christ will come. Yes, he will come, and there will be judgment. But notice that he comes with his Reward in his hand. Mercy and judgment. I'll give you two examples. Two times in the scripture, Jesus said, well, he said a lot of times, this was like this. The kingdom of heaven is like. And, and one time he was talking about his coming and he said, it's like, he said, as it was in the days of Lot. What was happening in the days of Lot? Well, that culture had become so violent, immoral, inhospitable, that it was dangerous to walk the streets. They were going to destroy themselves. So God, in his mercy, stepped in and judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Noah and the great flood. Noah, th there was such violence. If you read it, the scripture says that violence was rampant in the day of Noah. And God mercifully brought his judgment so that humanity could be saved. Not so that they could be damned, but so humanity... You see, here's the thing about damnation. Humans damn themselves. Humans take themselves to hell. So, well, I don't know how God of love can send people to hell. God of love doesn't send anyone to hell. Humans send themselves to hell. The Bible says, this is a very interesting verse, and it, it's one in my notes, which means it's free. You don't have to pay for it. If it's not in my notes, it's free. So this is free. 
The Bible says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. The only way you go to hell is if you follow the devil. You make the choice to go to hell. God doesn't send you to hell. Only, only place in scripture where I see people, someone be thrown into hell, it's that Satan's been thrown into hell. God created, well, we believe he created heaven, but we also believe he's creating a new heaven and a new earth for you. And you and you and you and you, every one of you. He's created a new, he's, he's preparing to create a new heaven and a new earth for you. So, I don't know if you remember um, if you're old enough to remember when we used to get under our desk to, pr- to protect ourselves from the nuclear blast. Do you remember that? I, I'm glad I'm not the only one who remembers that we would get under our desk to prepare for the nuclear blast. And that created an escapist mentality. So we would, on Friday, we'd be under our desk at school protecting ourselves from the evil empire, Russia. I remember when they were the evil empire. I remember when they were the Antichrist. And we would get under our desk, and so we'd go to church, and we were all primed and prompt to hear about the rapture, being caught out of here, so it became an escapist message. That is what it is. But the reason to be patient in suffering is we have a glorious promise that Christ will return and make everything right and bring justice to the last, the lost, and the least. Have you noticed... It? Have you noticed, I'll take a couple more minutes, it's second service, so we got all afternoon. Have you noticed that when humans, throughout history, I can't think of a time, when humans have attempted to enforce unity and peace and, and, and on their world, they end up judging the wrong people. I see it in the Roman Empire. I see it in the Soviet Union, North Korea. Mao's Mao's cultural revolution and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. You know, Cambodia, they they were... If you wore glasses, they would kill you because that meant you read books. And, And I'm not saying that's about to happen again or anything like that. I'm just saying, we humans, we can't get this judgment thing right. We need a wise, all-knowing, loving Savior who died for us, who knows what is evil and what is not, and knows how to judge righteously. We desperately need a righteous judge. And Jesus is our kind, loving, benevolent, righteous judge. So, we believe he's going to come and make everything right. Heal the world of pain and suffering. Restore humans to the glory of Eden. At last be the benevolent, just, and merciful king we so desperately need. The late Chuck Colson said, The kingdom of God will never arrive on Air Force One. Think about it. Isaiah 6, King Uzziah said, I 
in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. I believe that the church, Big C, Bethany, the little C, Bethany Community Church, I believe it will not be a philosophical or emotional defeat if once again we see the Lord high and lifted up and we see his train fill this temple. That will be victory. And that's what Jesus, he said, he said he's coming for a bride without spot or wrinkle. He is preparing you to be his beautiful bride. And that, my friend, is the culmination of the gospel. And that's the culmination of the good news. The good news that began at Calvary and continues and will continue and will culminate in him being truly the Savior of the world. Pastor Steve is going to come and close us out today. And if you have not made your decision to become a follower, a child of God, I hope you will pray with Pastor Steve right now and make that step today.